As you turn to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9 in your Bibles. Mark 9. Uh, One thing I've discovered over the last several months in uh, renovating our house is uh, the job I I hate the most. Like I always thought it was painting. I hate to paint. Who who likes to paint, right? But I've discovered it's not painting. It's not demolition. It's not climbing around in hot attics or even plumbing or electrical or anything else that I've, I've gotten to do. The thing I hate the most without a question is finishing sheetrock. It is the worst, mainly because it is the biggest mess you have ever seen. And so Thursday night while I was doing some of this work, especially ceilings, and, and I'm trying to apply sheetrock mud and it's falling almost in my mouth and on my nose and on my shoulder and in my beard and all over the place, which is not to mention the, the, the worst part of it is still yet to come because you have to sand it. And then the, this fine powdery white dust just gets everywhere. Like, I mean everywhere. It just coats you. It coats the room you're in. You've got to clean everything from top to bottom. It, it is a pain. And I'm, I'm so frustrated. I'm just, like, I'm just wanting to throw stuff. Just throw the trial and throw the mud across the room. Just in anger and aggravation. Like, I, I can't stand doing all of this mess. And for what? The glory of a smooth ceiling or smooth wall? Like, who determined that that's what our walls and ceilings need to look like? Why can't we just hang sheetrock and be done? Why do we have to paint it or mud it or smooth it out? It's ridiculous. It's, a wall is a wall. Why does the seams have to be filled? And in the middle of all that, I had been studying all that afternoon, preparing for this and looking at this text, this text that's all about um, understanding this, this big picture of Jesus we have to have to, to be his disciple, to lay down our life, to follow him. And, and I'm just reminded in the mess of sheetrock finishing, the mess of being a disciple of Jesus, the mess of following Jesus, the mess of discipleship, how sometimes we feel like that. We just want to quit. It's too hard. It's too tough. We, we make too many mistakes. We're such failures. We stumble and fall. Or we are investing in people and they're continually stumbling and falling. And it's like, why continue this? Let, there's got to be an easier life, a better life than this. It's too frustrating at times to try and live the Christian life. And I felt like the Holy Spirit was impressing upon me in the same way I needed to calm myself down and persevere and finish this stupid sheetrock job. So also, I need the Spirit of God to give me a vision of Jesus, a picture of Jesus that is so big, I will persevere in discipleship. We will persevere in making disciples, in being disciples of Jesus. That's what we have to see, and that's what we get to see in today's passage in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Father, we're grateful for your word. Help us to see Jesus this morning. Not in the same way, but in an equally powerful, transforming way. We need to see Jesus. Father, I confess my inadequacy and my complete dependency, our complete dependency on the Spirit of God and the Word of God to do this work. And so come. Come and open our eyes today and give us life. In Jesus' name, amen. Come to one of these peak moments of Jesus' ministry, this passage I've, I've actually never had the opportunity to teach or preach, but referred to many times. And as I was digging into the, the text and, and looking at the surrounding context, which is like rule number one of interpreting scriptures, is the context. I was just amazed to notice how this story of the transfiguration of Jesus in all three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, happens in the same exact flow of events. And so we've looked at that over the last few weeks. You have Peter confessing that Jesus is Christ. You have Jesus predicting his death and resurrection for the first time. You have Jesus then laying out the cost of being his disciple. That being a disciple of Jesus means you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That this is not an easy life he's calling to. It's an impossible life apart from the Spirit of God. And then following all of that, you have the transfiguration of Christ. And so seeing the transfiguration of Jesus in the context of him revealing himself as Messiah and him calling us to discipleship is crucial. Because if we are going to follow Jesus to death, we have to see Jesus in his glory, in his love, in his willingness to go with us into discipleship. This can't just be about you pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and figuring it out and toughing it out and working it out. This is about us seeing Jesus, us having eyes to see his glory, his might, his amazingness, and his willingness to love us and go with us into the difficult life he's called us to. The first clue to this connection is, is actually verse 1. He said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come um, with power. Now Jesus can't be talking about his second coming. I don't, I don't even know why our minds immediately go there. Like, how are there people still alive? And Jesus hasn't come back the second time yet. They're like 2,000-year-old people living in some cave somewhere, drinking miracle water and surviving until Jesus comes back. Like, why do our minds even go there? That can't be what he's talking about. It's not possible. And so you have to think about it in terms of, okay, what is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God, Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, um, is at hand. When he comes proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom of God is here. 
now. It's not just something we're waiting for and it's full fruition. It is already here and beginning to grow. The kingdom of God, we, we talked about back then, is not a geopolitical location on earth. Like America is not the kingdom of God. It's not a particular spot or place. The kingdom of God is wherever the king is already ruling in the life of his followers. So in theology, we call this an already but not yet um, uh, realized truth. The kingdom of God is already here. It has been here since Jesus was proclaiming the gospel. People were believing and coming alive and following him. But it's not fully here yet. That's coming. There's a day when the kingdom of God will be all that's left. There will be no more America or Russia or Germany or Britain. There will be no more nations. There will only be the King Jesus with his people for all of eternity. But we get a taste of that now as we as his people allow the king to rule and reign in our hearts. We see evidence of the kingdom and how we treat people and love people. And and we see the life of Jesus come through us. And so when Jesus says, some are standing here who won't die until they see the kingdom come in power, Mark is making the connection between that and what is about to happen. This transfiguration. They, when he said it, they didn't know that. Like, we don't know what that means. Six days later, they knew what that meant. Oh, we see the kingdom in power like never before. Ultimately, it's even more so the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom in power. And there were some who were standing there who would live until they see that as well. And so this is a picture of the king who has come revealing himself in power. And so here we are six days later, three of them, Peter, James, and John, they see the king in his glory. They see him in his power on the mountain with Moses, Elijah, with a cloud and a voice affirming the identity and the work of Jesus. Now we know, if you, if you know the Bible, this is not the first time that God has appeared to his people this way, on a mountain, in a cloud, with a voice. This scene is definitely pointing us back to Mount Sinai, where God, through the deliverer Moses, had led his people out of 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where there at Mount Sinai, God would meet with his people on the cloud, on the mountain, in a cloud, would speak to Moses, would write down his law, forming this relationship, this covenantal relationship with his people, and they would then go on and be his people after they left the mountain. And so this is definitely what's on the mind of anyone who knows the Old Testament and hears this story. It's intended to draw our minds to that scene. God meeting with his people, revealing himself for a relationship with them on a mountain. In fact, some believe when Mark makes that unusual mention of six days, something Mark doesn't usually do, point out time like that, he's referring to the six days that Moses sat on the mountain while the cloud covered the mountain until on the seventh day God spoke out of the cloud. And then Moses ended up spending 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain. Maybe so. Jesus says, it says in the passage, is transfigured or changed before them. With this light, this brightness emanating from him. It's not like Moses who reflected the light of God, the Shekinah glory of God, had to cover himself. This is Jesus generating this light from inside of himself. This light is emanating from him. A light that is so bright, so white, that even his clothes, the text says, look like that they were bleached. Now, that's the interpreters helping us out. Bleach wouldn't be invented until the 1700s. But essentially, in the original language of the New Testament, it says the clothes are whitened. A light that comes out of Jesus so bright, 
it changes his clothes. Can you imagine a light that bright? John had to be thinking of this since he was one of the three disciples there when he would later write in 1 John 1, 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. We often love to think about Jesus as a suffering servant. And we forget he is also the glorious son. This is as much of who he is as the humble carpenter from Nazareth. In fact, later Jesus in his glorified state would appear to John on the island of Patmos. And John, who was called the beloved disciple of John, who would lay his head on the chest of Jesus at times. John sees the glorified Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 and falls before him as a dead man. This is too much. I can't handle this glory of Jesus. And then John would later write in Revelation 19, this, this future appearing of Jesus in his glory, beginning in verse 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I never saw this on the wall in Sunday school class growing up. Just as we love to see Jesus as the suffering servant, the humble, kind, tough teacher of Nazareth who can identify with our humanity and sympathize with our weaknesses, we do not need to only see Jesus in his humility. We need to see him in his glory. This is also who he is. And it's amazing. A king who is not to be trifled with. The king who has all the power in the universe. Later on, if you keep reading that passage in Revelation, you have the supposed battle of Armageddon. And I don't know if you're like me. I grew up thinking that there's going to be this big battle one day on the plains of Armageddon. And Jesus and his followers are going to be fighting all these people of earth. And I'm like, man, I hope I'm not in that battle. That's going to be rough. People dying everywhere. It's not a battle. It's a massacre. It's a slaughter. Jesus opens his mouth and everybody's dead. This is Jesus. This is the king of the universe. And here in this scene in Mark chapter 9, this this transfiguration, he pulls back the veil and allows his closest followers to see a glimpse, just a glimpse. He couldn't give it all to them because the Bible says if if a man sees God, he's going to die. He couldn't reveal all the glory of God, but just a glimpse of who he really is. It's amazing. 
And then appeared Moses and Elijah. Moses had been dead for over 1,300 years. Elijah was taken up into heaven some eight to 900 years before, and now they're talking with Jesus. The question is always, why, why these two? You know, why not Uz and Buzz, the two brothers from Genesis 22? Some have suggested, well, Moses represents the law because he was the one God chose to write the law down, and Elijah represents the prophets because he was a prophet, but that's a little simplistic. Because Moses was also a prophet, and Elijah certainly cared about the law and would hold the kings and the people of Israel accountable to the law. There's a passage in Malachi that gives us greater insight. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, written around 450 years before Christ. And Malachi ends, the very last three verses of the Old Testament, ends with this prophetic message of hope. Verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb before all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Now we know that John the Baptist was a fulfillment of this Elijah role. Preparing For the day of the Lord, calling people to repentance. But overall, the Old Testament ends with this prophetic hope of the Lord's coming. And it ends talking about Moses and Elijah. Now the day of the Lord has come. And who shows up with affirmation and confirmation but Moses and Elijah? This is who Malachi was pointing to. This is who Moses was pointing to in the law. This is who Elijah was pointing to in his miracles and prophetic words. One who would come who would be greater than all of them. And here he is. And we're here to bear witness to that. That this is the one. The Lord has come. The day of the Lord is here. It tells us that they're talking with Jesus. Like what are they talking about? Well, Luke's account of this story, he helps us out. Luke 9, 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were talking about Jesus' crucifixion, his death. Again, we go to heaven one day, we're not going to become omniscient like God. We're not going to know all things. I think we're going to continue to learn in the new heavens and new earth. And like, this is a conversation I want to have. I want to find Moses and Elijah and say, what did y'all talk about? How did y'all talk about that? What was that like? Or maybe there's a, a streaming service we're going to have or a DVD we can check out of a heavenly library and watch it. I don't, I don't know, but I'm dying to, to be on the inside of that conversation just to hear Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talking about this culmination of redemption that all of history has been waiting for. Can you imagine that conversation? They're there confirming who he is. And as as good as it was, it now ends because Peter has something to say. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. In the most understated verse in the scriptures, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. But that didn't stop Peter, right? You think they were terrified? You think they didn't know what to say? It was this expectation, like we hammer Peter, like what a dumb thing to say, Peter. Come on, man. You're always putting your foot in your mouth. Why do you open your mouth when you don't know what to say? Didn't your mom teach you? If you don't have something constructive to say, then don't say anything at all or nice to say. 
But what Peter says there is actually not bad if you're in the, the shoes of a Jew growing up in the first century. Like they had this expectation that God would come again and dwell with his people like he had done in the wilderness. And so for him to suggest that they build these tents, these tabernacles for God to dwell with them again is not a bad idea. Peter just didn't know that the tabernacle of God is now Jesus. And he was dwelling with them already. Emmanuel, God with us. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, that word dwelt in the original language of the New Testament can be translated as tabernacled among us. And then to make this experience even more affirming and more Old Testament, a cloud surrounds them and a voice speaks. God appearing as a cloud, like Mount Sinai. And a voice speaks from the cloud, unlike at the baptism where the voice said, You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That was for Jesus. Now the voice says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That was for the disciples. That was for us. And the word here for listen doesn't just mean hear, but it means hear him and obey him. Like you're, you're listening right now, but not everybody is hearing. Or rather, you're hearing right now, but not everybody is listening. For some, this is just audio in your ears. As soon as you leave, it just stays here. And what we're asking for is the Spirit of God to do this work so that what you're hearing, you're listening and it's going deep inside so that it shows up when you leave this building. And every other time you encounter God's Word. And then Moses, Elijah, the cloud, the voice, they're gone. And it's just Jesus and the three disciples. So... So what's next? I mean, what do you do now? How do you follow this up? Where do you go from here? You come down the mountain and you go to Jerusalem. You head to Jerusalem, which is where the rest of the Gospel of Mark is headed. In fact, Jesus reiterates this call to suffer in verses 9 through 13. Jesus had been telling them throughout the Gospel of Mark so far to keep things quiet. He doesn't want people to misunderstand what kind of Messiah he is. But this is the only time where Jesus gives a time constraint, like a conditional time clause on this command to keep quiet. Don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. Again, they don't get this. They have no framework for this idea of the Son of Man suffering, the Son of Man rising from the dead. Resurrection was a part of their theology, but it was an end times resurrection. And so Jesus says this, and these guys are kind of looking at each other like, do you know what he means? I don't know. Do you know what he means? I don't know what he's talking about. But one day soon they would. Now we have this story. And they get into this discussion, and they ask him, why must Elijah come? Why do the scribes say that? Again, they're thinking about end times resurrection. Elijah Malachi 4, coming before the end. But Jesus brings them again back to the present by reminding them and reiterating his suffering. If Elijah suffered, and of course, Elijah being the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, John the Baptist suffered greatly, had his head cut off. If Elijah, John the Baptist, was treated harshly and suffered, so will the Son of Man. So will I. In fact, that expression, he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt, is more of a reference to servant of the Lord language we looked at last week in Isaiah 53. And so the the whole picture of this section is this. Elijah suffered. The Son of Man must suffer. The servant of the Lord must suffer. I am going to suffer. It's the plan. 
And so see this connection between the glory of Jesus seen in the transfiguration, the affirmation of Jesus by the Old Testament prophets, the voice of God, the cloud, the witnesses, and then see Jesus coming to do what he was born to do, to suffer and die on the cross for our sins and then rise from the dead. See Jesus in his glory and see Jesus in his love, his passion. This is who we follow. This is who we claim we are a part of. This is whose yard we put in our sign. This is whose identity we claim for ourselves. Because it's only when you see Jesus this way will you follow him to death. That's it. We're not following someone to death who is defeated by death. We are following someone to death who defeated death, who killed death, who was triumphant and victorious. Only if you see Jesus is the most glorious person or thing in your life, will you actually lay down your life and follow him. Like Jesus never changes. This is who he is all the time. It's not like on Sundays, like Friday, he's more glorious than on Monday. So it's harder on Monday than on Friday. That's not, he's like that all the time. The question is, do we see him like that all the time? Do we see him in his glory? Do we see him in his love? Like you're always going to be living for what you find to be most glorious. And so when we sin, we no longer see Jesus in his glory because the sin has now become more glorious and wonderful to us than Jesus. We actually, in the moment of sin, prefer sin than Jesus. Because if you were on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus has got light shining all out of him, you wouldn't even see the sin. You wouldn't do it right there in front of him. But we fail to see him like that all the time. And so when we sin, we, we don't see. When we're afraid, we don't see Jesus in his glory. We see the thing that we're afraid of as more powerful than Jesus. When we worry and we're anxious, we don't see Jesus in his glory. We see the thing that we're worried about is more controlling us than Jesus who controls everything. And therefore we have nothing to worry about or be anxious about. When we're timid or we lack courage, we don't see Jesus in his glory. We see the people that we're afraid of to love and get to the gospel with as more powerful and glorious than Jesus. And so we cower in timidity. When we are self-absorbed, self-absorbed, we we don't see Jesus in his glory, we see us as glory. And all we want and care about is us and enjoying ourselves and what we want to enjoy. When we fail to love and serve and sacrifice for the good of others, we don't see Jesus in his glory. Because it's, it's not worth his glory for us to lay down our life for the good of others. When we, don't base our, when we base our value and self-worth in the opinions of others, we're failing to see Jesus in his glory and love. We see that person's opinion as more glorious than Jesus. And so we bow down before their opinion to make sure their opinion of us is what we think it needs to be. 
We are failing to see he alone is worthy of our identity, devotion, and worship. And look, it's not that it's possible to always see Jesus like this. Paul said that in this realm, in this life, we see through a glass dimly lit. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. One day, the blinders will be gone, and we will see him and know him with no obstructions. And we will be with him in his glory forever. And we will not even need the sun or the moon or the stars, because he will be our light. And we will bask in his glory and know him in ways we, we can't even imagine right now. But until that day, it's a battle, and the Christian life is a constant battle for sight. The, the way the, 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 this was the emphasis uh, of Jesus a few passages back in Mark. The disciples could see, we talked about, but they lacked full sight. And we are the same stinking way. All sometimes we see is ourselves. And what I want in this moment, because I'm so big in my sight, I don't see Jesus in his glory and love. And so I serve and love and worship me. And when I do that, I am not somebody you want to be around. We are not people that we want to be around when we're like that. And you're going to be hurt, and you're going to be ignored, and you're going to be dismissed, and you're going to be unloved. But when, by God's grace, I see Jesus, I see His glory, I see His love, and it's something that leads to devotion and worship then we become this people who exhibit this incredible life displaying the fruit of Jesus' life in us. We become this community of selfless lovers of each other, givers of grace, sacrificers of time and energy for the good of others. We become egoless. We don't need the applause of others. We don't need the credit or approval of others. We are just blessing each other. We are just blessing our neighbors. We are blessing our city. We are, we are employees, our companies begin to look at and say, we, we can't do this without them. They bring so much health and life and vitality to this business. We are students who aren't obsessed with excelling, but we excel because we're not obsessed with it. We become a sweet aroma in our city and the very fragrance of God we display through our lives when we see Jesus in his glory and love. And we respond in worship and devotion. Like thinking through this, I, I come so face to face with my limitations. As I was thinking through this and just praying, God, I, I want to see you like this all the time. I know there are limitations with my flesh and the, and the, the sin-cursed world that we live in. But, but Jesus... Help me to see you more and more like this all the time. And then my prayers for me become prayers for you. Like, I want this to be true of the people of the Crossing Church. That we live like this. That we see this. And I, I come face to face with my limitations as a preacher. I can't do anything to make this happen in your heart. Nothing. I can stand up here and spit and scream for hours. And it won't do anything in your heart Apart from the Spirit of God, calling you, wooing you, bringing this life. And apart from you saying, yes, I want to see Jesus too like that. That's my heart. I identify with that. 
I don't want to see him in his glory that leads to a transformed life. So I just want to stop and pray for God's spirit to do that in us. Holy Spirit, come right now and do this work in the hearts of us. Do this heart, this work in the hearts of us from the, the youngest to the oldest in this room who has the capability to see Jesus in His glory, to love Jesus, to live their life captivated by the glory and love of Jesus. Do this work, Holy Spirit. You are our only hope to make this possible. And so come. In Jesus' name. This is also why we are organized as we are as the Crossing Church because we see our need and our failures in seeing Jesus this way. Like we need this more than anything else and we fail all the time. And so when we come together on Sundays, our goal is to put the spotlight on Jesus. No person, no theology or doctrinal system Uh, No denomination, but on Jesus, to make much of Jesus and his gospel. Through our songs, through our prayers, through our scripture readings, through the other readings that we do, to make it all about Jesus. So that for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings, we can put aside our distractions, our phones. We can lay aside the things that are constantly begging for our attention. And for an hour and a half, we can just see the glory of Jesus. Just focus on the glory of Jesus and be amazed. But we know as soon as we walk out that door, as soon as we're in conversation with each other in this room, the temptation exists for that to be gone. And so we've got to go with each other into the city. This can't just be show up on Sunday and check the box. I did that for an hour and a half. Good. I need you. You need us. We need each other to go with each other into the city and to do life together. So that Monday through Saturday, as we're doing life together as missional communities, we are helping encourage each other to see Jesus. And when sin comes along that looks better than Jesus, we have people in our life to say, no, that sin is not better than Jesus. And when life crushes us through tribulations and trials, we have people to come along and walk alongside of us and hold us up to say, this sucks. But Jesus is better than this. And he's going to sustain you through this. And he's working this out for your good and his glory. So we're organized in mission communities because we think that's the best way to do that in the everyday uh, aspects of life. To share life as a people of God in the city. And then we, we also need to go deeper than that. We need the gospel to go deeper inside of us than just that. And so we have these things called DNA groups. Men with men, women with women. Because I need to sit before my brothers, you need to sit before your sisters or brothers once a week and have them speak into your life the gospel. Because 90% of the time, the Holy Spirit will allow me to repent and believe the gospel again. I can kind of self-correct by God's grace. But there's parts of my life and times in my life where I can't. And I have blind spots in my life where I need brothers who will say, do you realize that you were really arrogant? Or do you realize you were really mean when you did that? And so I need DNA. We need these kind of types of relationships 
to help the gospel get deeper in us so that we more and more see the glory of Jesus and see his love and live a transformed life. That's how we believe God wants us to do it right now. It could change. We could find a better way to do all this. An ABC group or something else, whatever you want to call it. But right now we think this is the best way to to, to carry this out, this call to make disciples, to make disciples and be the church. So see Jesus' glory. See his love. Know that he is worth it. Like there's no buyer's remorse when you come to Christ and you lay down your life, you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Like no one lives this kind of Jesus life and you get to the end and you're like, man, I wish I'd have been more selfish through the years. There's a lot of people I could have been a lot meaner to. I wish I could go back and treat them a lot worse. I wish I would have just lived more of my life to make myself happy than I did. Like you live this Jesus life, you're lying on your deathbed and and you think about, man, I wish I would have done more for Jesus. I wish I'd have spent less time being concerned about myself. More time giving and serving of others. And so see that Jesus is worth it. Worth our repentance. Worth our believing in Him again. And maybe you're here today, like this is the first time you've really seen the beauty and glory of Jesus. Like to you, He's just this nice guy who taught a lot of nice things that a lot of people try and live out on an everyday basis. But you've never seen Him in His beauty and His glory and His wonder. And also seen His love, His willingness to go to the cross and sacrifice Himself for our sins so we can be forgiven and have life. And maybe today is the day of your salvation because today you see Jesus for the first time. And you're like, I believe. That's who I want to follow. He's my king now. And, and I would just encourage you, if that's where you're at, if that's what you're feeling in your heart right now, this, this, this yearning, this burning to follow King Jesus and repent of your sins and become a believer, to let somebody know this morning before you leave. But also know that He is with us. See that He is worth it, but also see that He is with us. We see Moses, we see Elijah, we see the cloud, the voice, and then all of it's gone. Disappeared. And it's just Jesus and Peter and James and John. And maybe they might have been a little shocked that they still had Jesus. Maybe they thought Jesus would have zipped out of here as well and be done. But he remains with us. Now, let's go back down the mountain into the muck and the difficulty of life on our way to the cross. And immediately, as Kendrick will walk us through next Sunday, immediately they're going to be punched right in the face with the yuck of life, the difficulties of life. Jesus is almost saying, I am the king, I am glorious. You have now unquestionably seen my glory, but I'm also a servant and I'm with you. And whatever I call you to, I go with you. So let's go. Jesus, the glorious suffering servant of the Lord, is also your shepherd, your friend, and your brother. Just just think about that. Wherever you go, he is with you. Like we, we had this skit in youth group, and I'm sure if you were in a youth group in church growing up, everybody did this skit where one person would be Jesus, like usually in a hoodie for some reason, and they would uh, kind of follow different characters around in their everyday life. And so Jesus is, is with this dude watching TV and he's flipping channels and turns on something he shouldn't watch and 
He looks over and Jesus is like, you know, doing something like that. Or maybe he's in conversation with somebody and he's saying bad things about somebody and Jesus is just kind of standing there looking at him and shaking his finger. Or just this, as youth, we never made it good. It's always bad how horrible we are. But, but this picture of Jesus going everywhere with us. Now, we make fun of that stuff and we should sometimes, but the truth in reality is legitimate. Like, he is with you everywhere you go. You never get away from him, which is a good thing. It's not something to be afraid of. It's a good thing. Because he is there not only to help us stay out of sin and to help us say no to sin, but he is there to give us courage and strength and to not be timid or afraid to stand up and not be ashamed of Jesus in our everyday life. To speak the truth of love, to speak the gospel to people that we are in life with. He is there to help us. He is not the great cop who's waiting to pull us over because we mess up. He is our friend, our brother, our shepherd, our king, who has lowered himself in order to come into our life, sympathize with our weaknesses, and help us in 10,000 ways that we're not even aware of. You all had that experience. Like, all of a sudden, you look back over a few weeks or a few months, and you're like, man, Jesus was doing a lot of stuff there that I wasn't even aware of, but now I am, and so I'm filled with gratitude. Because he's a good king. The presence of Jesus is with us and the Spirit of God. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus ascends into heaven after he tells them, Lo, I'm with you always into the, even to the end of the age. How can Jesus ascend and still be with them? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come in power. When he comes in power, you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. We have the presence of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And dwelling within us, we also have the presence of Christ and the presence of the body of Christ, each other, who are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is with us in spirit. Jesus is with us in his body. So that when we display the fruits of the Spirit to each other, for for instance, when we love each other with the love of Christ, We are treating each other exactly the way Jesus would if he were here bodily. When we share the joy of Christ, we are getting to experience Christ just as if he were here with us bodily. Can you imagine the joy these guys had walking around with Jesus for three years? When we are patient and kind and gentle with each other, it is exactly how Christ would treat us were he here bodily. When we keep no record of wrongs and we hold no grudges and we readily forgive, Jesus is here empowering that kind of fruitfulness. When we see and we view each other at our best and we give each other the grace that each other doesn't deserve but that which God has given us freely in Christ Jesus and when we assume the best about each other. This is the presence and reality of Christ among us. When we go together into the city and we love those who can't or won't love us back, when we go and serve those and we receive no applause or recognition, when we go and love a neighbor and walk with them through the mess of their life, the presence of Jesus is here. Also in truth and doctrine and worship and all that other stuff, but it's here in the fruit of the Spirit that is demonstrated through our life. I was listening 
to a podcast this week that was talking about the difference between conceptual genius and experimental genius. And it was all in the context of music, how some songs are written, and the artists who write them will tell you, I wrote that one time, and it became a hit. Like, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Paul Simon would say, I wrote that, I didn't feel like I wrote it, it felt like something was writing it through me. Wrote it one time, played it, immediately it's a hit. Conceptual genius. Painters who can just paint a picture one time, boom, done. It's beautiful. Experimental genius are the artists who labor and work and refine and tweak and adjust. It ends up being beautiful. It just took a long time to get there. Like there's a, a famous song, Hallelujah, by Jeff Buckley, and it's done by and been covered by tons of bands since then. Originally written by a Canadian, Leonard Cohen. When he released it in 1984, the guy who was over the album said this is garbage nobody likes this song and nobody really liked it at all until Jeff Buckley suddenly died it took many revisions and many adjustments and many tweaking by different artists changing this tweak that change that change until it finally became the song that everybody loves that's discipleship we don't just pull ourselves off the shelf open the box wind us up and away we go and we're beautiful it takes Tons of tweaking and experimenting and changing and repenting and believing and making a mess. And it's all a normal part of being a disciple of Jesus. As we continually deny ourselves, take our cross again and follow him. Because we can walk out of these doors and sin within seconds of hearing all of this and experiencing all of this. Before we even leave this building. And so again, we need to repent. And again, we need to believe the gospel and see the beauty of Jesus. <clears throat> yes, the Christian life is denying yourself, taking up the cross and following Jesus, but we don't go alone. And no other religion has this. We have Jesus. Jesus is with us. We are his people. Let's see him. Let's experience him. Let's share him with our city because we are going to get where he wants us to get. We're going to finish this race. We're going to become this beautiful masterpiece that he already sees in us. Let's be that and let's do that, church. Father, we are grateful for your grace that we would have the opportunity to be alive today and to study this passage that shows this beautiful, glorious picture of Jesus. Give us eyes to see this morning. Hearts to behold the glory of Jesus. Give us a will that is bent toward Him so that we leave transformed and we live out this difference before others. For your glory alone, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.